Brought to you by JMR Rentals, professional digital cinema and broadcast equipment rentals in Brooklyn, New York. JMRNY.com. Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend, where we go behind the scenes and talk to the creators of independent entertainment. I'm Jason Godby, and now we got part two of our 2020 streaming movie catch-up episode uh, featuring my good friend from ActuallyPaid.com, Mr. Bill Hammond. Welcome, Bill. Good to be back. Hey, man, it's great to, to have you. We are uh, going through a lot of movies here. Last time we met, we talked about some movies on Netflix and some stuff that's streaming. Now we have some more streaming movies. One, which was critically acclaimed, you wrote a great review about it. I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Mr. Charlie Kaufman. Give us a little bit about that. You know, right up front, this is one of my favorite movies of the entire year. But the basic premise is a young couple, Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley, are just going to the family farm home of, of Jesse Plemons' parents to meet them for the first time. They're, they've been dating for like six, seven weeks. Let's time, it's time to meet the parents. But along the way, this young girl, uh, Lucy, she internally doubts the future of the relationship. And as that doubt grows, the environment around her begins to change. Little things at first, obviously, but then big, confusing things. And not only leads her to question the nature of her relationship, but to, que but to question the nature of her own existence. And if that sounds heavy, you must have never seen a Charlie Coffin movie before. That's all I can say. Because Charlie Kaufman, just to give people some background, so he did Being John Malkovich, he wrote that. He also wrote Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which is a terrific movie. Then he did Cynic Dope, New York. This is him directing, once again. Did you think that this was kind of a more mature picture from the previous one? I mean, I, I, I read a, a recap um, on the AV Club just a couple days ago. They, they did their list of the best films of the year. And one of the funniest things they pointed out was reminding us that Charlie Kaufman once lost an Oscar to Inside Out. Back in 2016, it, uh, Inside Out won for animated feature, and it was up against Anomalisa that, that Charlie Kaufman did. And it was, it's funny because Inside Out is about exploring the inner workings of the mind. That's been Charlie Kaufman's entire career, basically. And he's better than basically anyone at illustrating these abstract thoughts in a vacuum as characters, as set pieces, as plot developments, whether whether you're watching Being John Malkovich or Adaptation or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, he's been doing this his entire career. I once wrote that if I ever got to, to work with him for a day, I'd, I'd either become a genius or go completely insane. There's no middle ground. As far as maturity, it's one of the pervading themes of the film, actually, because Throughout the whole course, we're wondering just where Jesse Plemons' character is as a matter of his own personal development. And that's illustrated both in the car ride over, the dinner with his parents, uh, just wonderful, fully animated and committed performances from uh, Tony Collette and David Thewlis. And there's also a remote high school that's putting on a production of Oklahoma. And there's this sad janitor who's kind of watching everything almost like a voyeur while also fantasizing in in the break room watching Robert Zemeckis films 
for, for looking for that delightfully schmaltzy ending. It's, it's an exploration of basically how a mind can progress and how revisionist our own histories can be when left to our own devices. The fragmented nature of memory as a whole, because it's not linear. You don't go A to B to C. You think about something that happened last week, then something that happened last year, then something that happened an hour ago. It's very disjointed, but the genius mind that is Charlie Kaufman is able to bind it into a cohesive whole. And, and I don't think anybody else could have done it this way. I feel like with his films, like I remember seeing Eternal Sunshine and thinking, you know, this is like a deconstruction of a genre. You know, this is like a deconstruction of a romance or deconstruction of a, a romantic comedy. Uh, with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, it has that same, like, it has that same uh, stream of consciousness quality to it, uh, which I guess is like a hallmark of his. But um, you know, a lot of people said that this is one of those films that you can't just watch it once. And that maybe that's why I haven't decided to see it yet, because it's it's one of those, like, it's a commitment kind of movie. Do you feel do you feel that too? Yeah, and, and deconstructions are, uh, and stream of conscience, those are really good terms to describe this. And and I know this, I remember this from my high school days. I hate reading stream of conscience, like, like Sound and the Fury, James Joyce. I hated reading those novels because it was hard to visualize a stream of consciousness in my own head. Charlie Kaufman is able to properly visually represent this idea in a way that's relatable and understandable, whether it's uh, the use of the three by four, uh, the four by three aspect ratio, basically making the scene more and more compact, in essence, trapping you inside your own thoughts, or just something as random as picking up a book and seeing, oh, it's essays by Pauline Kael, and then Jesse Buckley reciting one of them verbatim in the car scenes later. I was like, it, it makes you wonder, like, well, how, who would memorize Pauline Kael? You know, I was like, not, you know, dis, no disrespect for, to, to Pauline Kael, uh, but, but it's like, it, if you think I'm verbose, you know, <laughs> like, you know, every essay she writes is like 10 Hamlet soliloquies. So it, it's, there's a whole lot to parse with that, but yet here's this character just randomly having an argument with her boyfriend and, and showing legit chemistry while they do it. I mean, she's, she's doubting whether she can keep this relationship going, but these arguments actually show there's, there's that right kind of chemistry and, and relationship quality to it. And then she just up and recites, you know, just up and recites a Pauline Kael essay. Sure. Uh, you, you go have dinner with your parents and in one moment, they're about the proper age for parents to a to a 25 year old then they're in their 60s then they're they're teenagers again in the next scene and then there's conversations about uh dementia and and alzheimer's which uh on a personal level i've had to deal with this year so it's it's a little bit it, it definitely hit home for me um and i'm sure it would hit home for a lot of other people who've dealt with those those issues it's again this this insane relatability on the oddest most abstractive issues that honestly makes it comforting as well as insightful. It sounds really good. I definitely want to check it out. Um, I, by, I would say that you'd have your recommendation on it. Uh, yeah, and you, you definitely need to watch it more than once to, to pick up everything. There, there's, there's so much going on in every scene, which makes it even more astounding that it's mostly done in four by three. Because you're, you're packing a lot of stuff into such a small space, physically, figuratively and literally. 
It's, I mean, it, it sounds interesting. And, and, you know, in that four by three aspect ratio, too, it's also like kind of more TV friendly. Like maybe it's a movie you don't need to see on a big giant screen. There's definitely an economy of space there. And for those of us who, who grew up watching movies on TV, I mean, I mean there's, a, there's a really good moment towards the end where basically uh, they reenact this bout, this big dance number moment from Oklahoma with shades of, of an American in Paris added to it that if you ever watched, you know, Turner Classic Movies growing up, it was like, you've seen this. If you ever watched the Saturday afternoon movie of the week when the football games rained out or whatever, that you've seen this exact kind of aspect ratio. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely going to see the movie. I'll check it out. And, uh, you know, your review is um, on your website. Yes, um, and I believe it's on yours as well. <laughs> so uh, let's move on to the next film, uh, which is we're going to, it's very different change of pace. Enola Holmes. Uh, now, Enola Holmes is a telling of the little sister of Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes. It is a mystery. Millie Bobby Brown stars in the titular role, and you have some great people in it. You have uh, Helena Bottom Carter plays the Holmes mother, and uh, then you have uh, Henry Cavill as Sherlock Holmes, which I thought was a really interesting choice. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown is terrific. Uh, she is, uh, she's a star, you know, she, I, you know, from, she's definitely, she's growing up, she's maturing as an actor and she's a wonderful performer. I think she's definitely a reason to see the movie. Uh, good looking movie. It's in a, it's a period piece. Uh, I, my biggest thing was Henry Cavill as Sherlock Holmes. You know, it's trying to unravel a mystery. So the, the mother goes missing, and uh, Enola is raised uh, almost solely by her mother, and she disappears. And then it's the mystery of like finding the mother. And we go on this long adventure with Enola. She eventually meets a boy. Mycroft and Holmes, they're there, but they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're on the sidelines kind of thing. But it, it's interesting. I thought it was pretty well done. Some wacky stuff in it, though. What was your impression of it? I went into this really, really wanting to like it. Millie Bobby Brown is a bona fide star at this point. You know, I mean, obviously her work on Stranger Things is spectacular. You know, she's got a very accomplished resume to this point. And she doesn't seem to be falling into the child star trappings that so many before her have. But I just couldn't get into it. I, I wanted to so badly. But the film has way too many young adult novel trappings in it. On a meta level, Arthur Conan Doyle's estate is suing Netflix over the film because they think Sherlock is too emotional in some scenes. And as much as I enjoy him as an actor, no one has ever accused Henry Cavill of being too emotional. It's just never happened. I mean, I, I think him cocking his fist in, in Mission Impossible was, is about as emotional as that guy gets. He, he, he's the perfect deadpan, but he does show more emotion than a typical interpretation of Sherlock Holmes would. It's a different kind of emotion too, because he's he's sort of sentimental a little bit in it, which is not, which I think was written about in the later works of Conan Doyle. And that's where that's where the family's suing. The later works of, of, of Conan Doyle do give Sherlock more of an empathetic personality that he, than he normally had in the, in, in the original run. And apparently those stories are still under copyright, whereas the rest of Sherlock Holmes is in the public domain. So I, I, 
I am about as good a lawyer as Rudy Giuliani is, which is to say not at all. So I really can't touch it. But but just on its surface, like you're you're accusing Henry Cavill of being too emotional. Yep. Okay. Let's just. Yeah. When I when I saw that casting, I was like, really? Because well, for one thing, you know, he's a, a huge hunk of beefcake. This guy, and he looks so weird in those period suits. It looks so out of place to me. I would have bought it more if this was the Guy Ritchie version of Sherlock Holmes, where it's where combat is more important than deductive reasoning, because that would be something more up Henry Cavill's alley as an actor. And, and again, this is not to. to to discredit him in any way. He, he, he's, he's a fine actor. He makes a good Superman. And I really did enjoy him in Mission Impossible. That, like, again, th those fight scenes were just amazing. Uh, and the guy knows how to, chore to be in those kind of choreographed moments. So to, to have him be more subdued and yet still more emotional as Sherlock Holmes, prob probably mi a miscast here, but I, I, I'm not going to fault him for trying. Yeah, and I, I thought, the, I think, you know, like I said, she's very good. Helena Bonham Carter is very good. For the um, two minutes she's in it, yeah. <laughs> but we also have to, like, putting this in perspective, though, we have to realize that, you know, we're not the audience for this movie. This is the teenage girl version of Sherlock Holmes. We are not the intended audience. I think the, the attendant audience really liked it. I think it did very well with people, you know, in and around that age. And it's like, you know, when you were a teenager and you were reading those YA novels or you were reading mystery stories or maybe you started reading Sherlock Holmes, it, it captures the spirit of that. Technically, the only thing I thought was weird was the the breaking of the fourth wall stuff. Yeah, that 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 got annoying really quickly. And, and I and I, I I don't I don't use that word lightly. Like it's one, it's one thing to break the fourth wall in something that might be era appropriate, like a Deadpool or, or even John Belushi winking at the camera in, in uh, Animal House. It's like, it's, it's one or two moments meant for comic effect. Here she's literally turning to a camera that would not exist in Victorian England and narrating the entire story, not just breaking the fourth wall, but breaking the scene as well. And it just doesn't work. It, 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 pulls you right out of the picture. Uh, it, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the biggest fan of narration as a plot device either, but if, the, if those are the two options, take the narration, you know, or given that this is a character who's a member of the Holmes family and likes to play word puzzles, well, have her write something down, you know, it, it, narrate to that. It, it, it plays more like a Dear Diary moment, which I guess, again, is for the target audience. But for what you're trying to do, it's just out of place. I felt like that was a generational thing, too. Like, they were trying to make a new Holmes, like a new thing for a new generation. And, you know, it's, again, like we were talking about, you know, with Rebecca. Like, uh, why are we going to make another, like, Sherlock Holmesy kind of story? Well, we got we got to put a different spin on it. In that case, like, why not just make the whole thing modern like the narration has been used in period movies but in general it's like somebody writing in a diary or it's the works of or like an epistolary or something like that it's not someone stopping and talking to the camera and it's and it's not that we haven't already done this i mean we have the bbc sherlock show we have elementary on cbs in this country like we've had modernized versions of sherlock holmes plenty of times um, and, that, and that's why I kind of like, well, we really don't need a Holmes for the new generation because we've been fine with the Holmes we've had for 150 years. The young adult trappings here are kind of what bothered me more than anything. And I know, and I know I'm not the audience for that. So, so, so take this with, with the requisite grains of salt that you need to, but 
if you're trying to have this movie where you basically say, hey, here's Sherlock Holmes' little sister, and she's smarter than Sherlock himself, well then, Sherlock would not derail his entire investigation because he met a cute boy. It's like, it's, like, it's, it's, it's not, hey, let's solve the mystery. Oh, wait, here's someone who looks like they're from one direction, and let me use a pocket knife to cut their hair so they look like someone else from one direction. No, just no. This is, this is more of a failing of the genre than anything else. I mean, this movie kind of reinforces it in the sense that you have Helena Bonham Carter, uh, you have Henry Cable, you, you have Sam Claflin, who was uh, Finnick O'Dare in The Hunger Games. It was like, you have a lot of young adult film actors in this film to reinforce that idea. It's one thing to kind of take that angle. It's another thing to basically make it its, its whole different ball of wax where you basically deprive the protagonist from having a real adventure. And, and again, like, like I started to say, this is, this is sort of, a, of an issue with the, the genre as a whole. I mean, uh, there, there's plenty of other examples. The one that immediately comes to mind is the Mulan remake that came out this year, um, which I'll admit I haven't seen, but I've seen enough. I've seen a bunch of clips and I've read a lot of reviews of it. When it comes to young adult films, especially those that have a strong female lead, apparently it's like a studio note or something that this strong female lead can have no flaws. She can't have anything wrong with her to learn from and get better. She has to already be pre-built as a certified badass. In the, to, to take the Mulan point, the original Mulan, for all of its pluses and minuses, you have this awkward girl who's making a, quite frankly, a very stupid decision to, to, to save her father's life and basically sacrificing her own in the process because she has no realistic chance of surviving this war. And then she learns how to become a fighter. She learns how to become a warrior. And then she pulls off some heroics. In the remake, she's already doing parkour off the walls at age four. It's like, there's, there's no journey now. She's already, she's already the superhero. Same thing with, with, with Enola. You build up this, this mythos of her being smarter than Sherlock with flashbacks of her doing jujitsu with her mother to the point where you know, and this, this is, I guess, a spoiler, but really it's not if you, if you, if you know anything about the way these movies are made. Like, oh, she beats Sherlock to solving the mystery, except that she doesn't. She comes to the wrong conclusion, but gets made right by circumstance, whereas Sherlock actually solves the, the real mystery a day later. So, like, what did we really learn here? I kind of missed that part, too. Like, I missed, the ending to me was a little bit muddy as to, you know, exactly, but... I think to your point, though, about what you're saying is like, yeah, you can't be super awesome at 16. Like, it might have been more interesting to kind of see, like, the Sherlock Begins or, like, the Enola Holmes Begins version of this. Here's a good example, and I guess this, this, this is generational, but here's a good example to compare this to. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, okay? You, you have a central character in a teen movie who breaks the fourth wall and talks to the, directly to the audience the entire way through, but it makes sense because it's the 80s and there's the technology to exist for that to happen. But everything goes right for him in spite of himself. He is not that skilled of an individual. He just gets lucky over and over and over again. There are so many opportunities along the way for his grand scheme to blow up in his face and it's down to the contrivances of the script and the characters to make it so that doesn't happen. Whereas with Enola Holmes, it really is just we're waiting for the next moment. Oh, the assassin somehow didn't die again. We don't care how he found her, but fight, fight, fight. 
he should have died. Somehow he lives and he'll be back at the end. You know, there's nothing, there's no real point where she's got a realistic chance of failing. She's always going to get there. It's just a matter of how and why and how much time do we waste along the way. This is, a, this is kind of a blow to film. It's like two hours and 10 minutes for something that would normally be like a half hour pilot on Nickelodeon. Do you think that's like the superhero uh, influence bleeding in? Like, is she just an X-Man in disguise kind of thing? But even some of the, the superheroes, like, like Captain Marvel, all of her powers are there. She just has to discover them and unlock her memories to get to them. So, like, there is still a journey to happen. There's still, there's still things that have to happen for her to get to that place where she's able to basically become God, you know, and, and be indestructible. She doesn't start out the film as indestructible and then just loses a couple of fights to humor the enemy. Like, no, she actually does have to figure all this stuff out. She's got her amnesia. She's got her memory blocks. There, there's, there's things that she truly has to figure out. This, this is more of the, if you're going to go with superhero, this is more of a Black Widow type thing where I was like, okay, it's Scarlett Johansson in a jumpsuit and she can kick your ass and shoot you. It was like, I was like, I didn't know we needed a movie for that, but sure. Anyway, we're going to move on to the next film, which I believe I also saw on Netflix. This is a documentary called Dance Dreams Hot Chocolate Nutcracker, which features uh, Debbie Allen. It's about the Debbie Allen Dance Academy. And uh, she, years ago, started her own dance academy and you know, to raise money for it, because a lot of the kids go there uh, as sort of a, uh, on a pro bono type basis. So she invented her own version of the Nutcracker. When she was in ballet school as a kid, all, every dance academy all over everywhere used the Nutcracker to raise money. So she came up with her own version of it that was different than the original. Like there's like the characters sing, there's different versions of Christmas in it. It goes all around the world. It sounds like a really cool show. They do show some of it, but this is like the behind the scenes from casting through the process. And you get to see uh, Debbie Allen sort of being the character that she was in fame when she was teaching these kids. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen any of that stuff or, or known people who are dancers, but it's a very strict, almost militaristic lifestyle, you know, like, and they are, and she's, she knows a lot of these kids come from backgrounds where, you know, they may not get into a lot of the other dance schools and also there's a lot of prejudice and racism in dance still to this day, especially in the world of ballet. So she's combating that as well. It's the story of kind of her story, the school story, and also the story of this show and some of the kids in it, some of whom have started when they were little kids, like six, and uh, you know, now they're doing it 18. It's one of those things like, you know, if, if 2020 has sort of beaten you down and you're like stressed out or you know, you're sitting in quarantine or something. It's just a good movie to watch uh, and feel good about things again. I'm intrigued by this because, yeah, I grew up watching Fame, both, both the movie and the TV show. And, and, and of course, Debbie Allen was a huge part of that. I used to be a theater nerd, so I learned a lot about the great choreographers like, like Debbie Allen, like Twyla Tharp. You know, th th there's, there's a lot more to this, and especially for a, a dopey white guy with no rhythm whatsoever. It, it, I, I'm always fascinated by people who do things that I can't. That's why I love animation so much. I can't draw to save my life. So the, the artistry that these people can come up with is amazing to me. Same with dancers. You know, I, when I did theater, I could learn the steps that I was choreographed to learn, but I couldn't improvise to save my life. Couldn't do, couldn't do it for nothing. Almost no rhythm whatsoever. I could sing, but I couldn't dance. Just, just, just a talent I do not possess. So those who do have that talent, 
I'm in awe of. So, I mean, and, and Debbie Allen, of course, she, she's an icon in so many ways, not just with dance. I mean, I think, I want to say she co-founded the We Women's Entertainment channel back in like 2002 or, two, or 2001 as well. Like she's, she's been very active throughout her entire career in creating opportunities for women, for African-Americans, for other underserved communities. So to, to basically do that in the form of, of a modernized or at least creative nutcracker, that's fascinating to me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put that on my list. It's a good watch. And like, like I said, man, if you're feeling, if you're having a tough day, it's a great one to put on. And, and for some people uh, who have a history of performing in theater, it will take you back. Um, but it, it's just a really lovely film I think people should know about. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up uh, for people who want to find you and read reviews of yours. Where can they find you on the web? The website is actuallypaid.com. Thank you all out there for taking this trip down the rabbit hole. For more of our content, including our movie reviews, visit our website, norestfortheweekendpodcast.com. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Once again, I want to thank the great William Hammond for being here today. And also want to thank our sponsor, JMR Rentals. For Behind the Rabbit Productions, I'm Jason Godby. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.